0: Hello, everybody welcome back to the raise green podcast this is franz hochstrasser ceo of raise green the raise green podcast explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts short accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy just and sustainable future as economic disparity and environmental degradation As well as social injustices continue emerging as defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. Welcome to Raise Green. And today's guest is the inimitable Lynn Heller. Lynn Heller is the founder and CEO of the Climate Access Fund. Lynn has more than three decades of experience in social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, nonprofit management consulting, and public policy. Prior to launching the Climate Access Fund in 2017, Lynn served as vice president to the ABLE Foundation, where she oversaw the foundation's operations and managed the foundation's environmental grants portfolio. Before working at the ABLE Foundation, Lynn worked as a strategic planning and management consultant to nonprofit organizations in Maryland, and launched nonprofit political and economic development programs in Baltimore, California, and Indonesia. Lynn is a current board chair of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters, a past member of the Maryland Climate Change Commission, and served for nine years as a founding member of the Baltimore Sustainability Commission. Lynn earned a master's in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and a BA from Princeton University, magna cum laude. Welcome to the show, Lynn.
1: Thank you, Franz, great to be here.
0: We at Raise Green are big fans of the work you're doing at the Climate Access Fund, but we always like to start off with what is sometimes a hardball question and sometimes considered a softball question because it's so wide ranging. And so I'll I'll give it to you here, which is, who are you, what do you do, And why is this aspect of climate solutions so important to you? Give us a little bit about your journey and uh, how you became a change maker.
1: Well, what a good starting question, Franz. So, I like to say that I was bitten by the climate change bug (laughs) in 2005. So, prior to 2005, I'd spent most of my professional life working on social justice issues, international development. I had a stint in voting rights. So I was really very, very focused on economic, political, and social development of underserved communities. And then in, and I went at that in various ways. And then I um, actually went, I was turning 40, I'm dating myself, and I was at a um, seminar and heard someone talk about climate change and how It is not, in fact, something that would impact us 200 years from now, but that it was much more immediate than that. And I sort of had one of those moments where I thought, you know what? And I was um, having my third child and I thought, you know what? If I I don't know how many more years I have left on the planet, but I want my children and my children's children to benefit from nature in the way that I have um, my whole life. So I then came back to Baltimore and started really focusing, shifting my career towards climate change issues. Fast forward to 2013, when I was working at the ABLE Foundation, um, I spent a lot of time looking at the question of how to make sure that lower income communities benefit from this transition to clean energy that you know, at the time was certainly underway and continues to be underway Um, because for for a couple of reasons. One, I felt like it was the right thing to do, sort of from an equity and justice perspective. But two, in Maryland alone, there are 400,000 low-income households. That's a lot of fossil fuel consumption. And so if we leave out huge sectors of the population from accessing clean energy... That's not good from a climate perspective and a greenhouse gas perspective, either. So while I was at Able, I really started looking at which is a private foundation in Baltimore. I started looking at various models, first, starting with models of single family, low income rooftop solar, and sort of which was what was happening around the country most at that time. To the extent anyone was looking at this issue, it was it was done on a single family. House homeowner, low-income homeowner basis. But I determined after a couple of stops and starts that it really wasn't scalable. And then at the same time, along came community solar, which is a sort of policy and regulation that states around the country have implemented, for those who don't know, whereby households can sign up for renewable energy, solar, power that is generated not on their rooftop, but somewhere else. And that means that low-income folks, among others, who may not have the upfront capital or are renters, which um, 59% of low-income households in um, the country are renters, the community solar gives those households the opportunity to benefit from clean energy, which is usually discounted from there i sort of started doing a lot more research and realized that the way that we that solar energy had been prior to community solar was really where you know you had big out of state investors sometimes wall street investing in giant projects whether they be wind projects or industrial scale solar projects and they were benefiting corporations which is totally fine and we need that but I was particularly interested in this term called democratized clean energy whereby you would have instead of having one central power plant owned by, you know, a big corporation which then distributes energy to households, you would instead have communities generating energy through solar, consuming the energy themselves and hopefully even owning the energy. And so what I did from the Able Foundation is I I said, okay, well, but there are reasons that the industry is not financing these projects. And that's because there was a big financing gap. And so I ended up leaving the foundation to start the Climate Access Fund to be a green bank, um, which essentially means that we have access to flexible capital as a nonprofit green bank that we can apply to projects that serve, that are smaller, are located in underserved communities and that serve predominantly lower income households. And so that's how the climate access fund got started.
0: What a journey. That's that's fantastic. Every time I do one of these episodes uh hearing the answer to that question is always so inspiring the way that people find themselves in this work. It gives such clarity, I guess, really to to anyone who's looking to get into the field that you can get into it in so many different ways and from so many different angles, and from different backgrounds as well, and and still contribute in such major and interesting ways. So appreciate the overview there. And you spoke about you know low income households having particular difficulty. One measure of that is the energy burden, defined as the percentage of gross household income spent on energy costs. And so I know you're you're working to kind of attack that in Maryland alone, it's for low-income households, at least in a recent APPRISE report is 13% compared to 2% for non-low-income households. Um, And in some instances, it's as high as 42%. You know, a lot of what your work, as I understand it, is set up to address is related to reducing that energy burden Tell us the story of your project and who is being helped by it. Uh, what the impacts will be, and and why should our listeners? Um, what what does it mean to them as well?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm glad you brought up the issue of the energy burden because, you know, I think if if I were exclusively focused on climate change, this may not be and and you know reducing as many greenhouse gas emissions as I as one single person could could help to reduce, that this would not probably be the work I would be doing. But the truth is, I feel very strongly about equal access, and the energy burden is a reflection of sort of the historic nature of, you know, certainly racial discrimination in the country. Baltimore City alone, um, 35% of Baltimore City residents, and I am a resident of Baltimore City, are low income. And as you said, the energy burden is really significant as when compared to non-low-income households. In fact, the Maryland People's Council estimates that the range in Maryland of the difference in energy burden is four to twenty one times the of low-income households energy burden, four to twenty one times the energy burden of non-low-income households. So it's really, just a wide gap. COVID, of course, and has only increased that energy burden. And there's just beginning to be data coming out on the burden of um, utility bill payment that lower income households face as a result of COVID and the economic crisis. But in any event, the project, So, so a lot of why we're doing this is because it is a triple bottom line project, right? We've got the environmental greenhouse gas emission reductions we've got the energy bill savings to low income households and then we've got the social equity piece so what is the project the project is a an 874 kilowatt solar system for those who for whom that means anything on the rooftop of the Henderson Hopkins school which is a public contract school. It's a type of charter school located in East Baltimore. And that school, it's a K through K-8 school. It it considers itself a community school. And actually during COVID, particularly throughout 2020, Henderson Hopkins did a tremendous food distribution effort just out of the, the gym, a gymnasium of the school to to address community issues and hunger in the neighborhood caused by you know, the immediate onset of COVID. So it's a really wonderful school and school community. It has been through hard times. It's got new leadership now. And it's just, I wish more people knew about the success story that is Henderson Hopkins. They have leased their rooftop to us for $1 a year because they believe so much in the mission of what we're trying to do. The project will be essentially solar panels located on the rooftop, On canopies, so they will be elevated um, above the rooftop equipment, et cetera. These solar panels, we estimate to generate enough power that will be sent into the grid to then benefit 175 low income households. And by benefit, I mean those low income households can sign up to participate in this project. They pay their bills to the community solar project. And then they get a credit on their BGE bills, Baltimore gas and electric bills in our case, for the amount of power that they're consuming from this solar project. So that's what community solar is. And they will get through our financing, they will get a 25% discount on their electricity bills overall. And while that may not sound like a lot, it averages out to about, we estimate about $200 a year Per family, which is a lot when you're struggling to make ends meet. And that actually ends up being around $1.6 million collectively of all the 175 families over the life of the solar project. So it's a a significant impact. The solar array also will will generate enough solar power to offset the equivalent of almost 6,000 passenger cars driving for a year. So that's kind of a fun. I could give you the metric tons of CO2 equivalent, but that I think is harder to, to get your head around than just passenger mm-hmm. cars. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll say about the about the project is um, we'll have, we're going to be working with the school to start an after-school club for the middle school students, um, the vast majority of whom are low income and from the community. Um, so that they'll learn about the value of community solar and they'll learn about climate change. And hopefully they'll bring those messages home um, to their families. There will also be an opportunity for job training and apprenticeships for local, um, local community members who, who might be interested. And of course, <laughs> we hope that the, the crowdfunding, the, our partnership with Raise Green, might result in some participation of some of the community members in the ownership of the solar asset itself. So generating wealth, rather than having the solar project be owned by a single corporation or solar developer who may or may not be even located in the state of Maryland, we really love the idea of having the project be locally owned and in part community owned. And so that mm-hmm. that brings us to race green. and that's why we're so excited about about this partnership.
0: Fabulous, uh, Myriad benefits in there. You said there that uh, you wished more people knew about the success story of, of Henderson Hopkins. and I think that thanks to your work, you and Suzanne um, on this this project um, and our hopefully our collaboration together as well, they will. How can the average person support your project?
1: other than potentially investing in the the project, there's always donating to the Climate Access Fund because we are a nonprofit and we, um, like many nonprofits, we are not rolling in in money. (laughs) But then in addition, spreading the word, what we are trying to do with this project on the rooftop of Henderson Hopkins is establish a model for similar projects to be replicated, not just in Baltimore, but in urban areas across Maryland, and we do hope to share our lessons learned and share the model even beyond that in partnership with Raise Green. So spreading the word among lower-income folks who might be interested in subscribing or building owners, commercial building owners who might be interested in maybe not a $1 lease payment, but <laughs> might be interested also in the you know public relations benefit of putting a project like this on their rooftop, spreading the word among legislators, because we do have some, some public policies, both at the state level and the city level, that are trying to make this these finances work better or more easily uh, with these projects, spreading the word among schools, uh, which would be wonderful potential partners, you know, beyond Henderson Hopkins or churches, anyone who has a rooftop that is greater than probably 30,000 square feet is eligible and it needs to be a relatively new roof. So I would say investing, donating, but then spreading the word and um, volunteering would also be wonderful if someone has time and expertise in certain areas. Um, We're a very, very small nonprofit. We do a lot of contracting out of services and can always use help.
0: From energy literacy to financial literacy to community organizing and raising awareness around the importance of of addressing these issues, I think, like you said, you know the the benefits here um, are abound, and I think it's such a powerful model for one of the things that we see at the federal level is an initiative around uh, they're calling it Justice Forty, uh, this idea of forty uh, percent of the benefits of clean energy and climate investment flowing to historically disadvantaged and under-resourced communities. Um, And you all are really at the tip of the spear there. So the power I think of connecting up uh, the ownership side with the possibility that somebody who's benefiting from reduced electricity costs as a low to moderate income tenant could also own a piece of that asset. Um, is sort of this holy grail, I think, of the cycles of wealth hopefully generating and being retained in local areas. So it's an incredibly powerful vision and cheers for doing it. My last question for you is, and it's a two-parter, you touched on this already, but why is democratized investment so important to you and to your project? And why is Raise Green uh, the right medium for projects like this?
1: Before I answer that question, I want to hire you as a spokesperson because what you just <laughs> the way you just framed what we're doing is terrific. And uh, um, yes, well said. Um, i was
0: I was just using your words. so <laughs>
1: <laughs> so a democratized solar project or democratized solar needs democratized investment. I mean, it just sort of they go they go hand in hand in a lot of ways what we're trying to do here is in in the big picture is really shift power literally and figuratively away from central you know big corporations who are generating in many cases fossil fuel based electricity that then goes through all these wires and on the grid and eventually goes down to house trickles down to households and the households have to pay a lot for it. Um, And there's energy wasted along the way. What we're trying to do is shift that around, right? By democratizing it, we're kind of flipping that model on its head. And Part of that is shared ownership. And so, you know, we're we're trying to aloof, we we recognize that we're trying to achieve a lot of different goals at once, but they're all very consistent with each other. And I think, again, democratized solar and democratized investment kind of go hand in hand and raise green with its focus on climate change and lower income communities really is just the perfect partner to help us do that.
0: I should be hiring you as a spokesperson. <laughs> um, no, that is that's a very, very eloquently put and uh, shifting power back into the hands of people and reducing energy burdens in a way that uh, truly, you know, makes makes a difference on the, the S piece of the environmental, social and governance framework is so critical and also so, uh, so much of what is at least profess to be the interests of uh, many of the, the larger and historically incumbent investors as well as energy companies and utilities. So I think we are trending in that direction. Big thanks to you for for leading the way on that. And uh, it has been an absolute joy uh, working with you, Lynn, and your team at the Climate Access Fund. Any last uh, pearls of wisdom or thoughts for our listeners on this this episode?
1: No, just get out there and do what you can for you know, for climate change and um, and justice. We we don't have a lot of time left, so <laughs> I guess that would those would be my only words.
0: Indeed, uh, excellent. Well, thank you again so much, Lynn, for coming on, and uh, thank you everyone for for tuning in.